Today, I have the statement from another Polish theologian who is rebuking modernism and who was pushed by Traditionis Custodis and the Pacamama debacles into the SSPX. His words are a rebuke of the entire project of modernism. This letter was translated for me by a Polish listener, so if there are any syntax issues or clumsy language, it's honestly because of that. No offense to the listener sent this to me. I do greatly appreciate it. However, the priest's reasoning here is clear. His actions are based on his love for the faith and the church, how he cannot be a party any more to the loss of faith from the practice of communion in the hand and the new mass, which was clearly designed to destroy belief in the real presence, among other issues. All of these claims he makes himself and has his documentary evidence that he cites to back up each of his claims. Something is clearly happening in Poland, so if you have news stories about what is happening in the church in Poland, send me an email to the address on your screen with links to those stories. If you're not watching this on YouTube but listening elsewhere, there are links in the description box of this video that include my email address. I plan to return to covering the USCCB meeting and Cardinal Supich's attempts to destroy sacred tradition and enthrone modernism in America tomorrow. I'll refrain from any further commentary on this until the end. Now the words of Franciscan Father Cyprian Colendo. Reverend Father Provincial, I am writing this letter with great pain, but at the same time knowing that it is impossible to stay in the state of conscience in which I am without harming my own salvation. For almost a year now I have been seeing how the ideals that guided me when I entered the order fade, and how our pastoral and liturgical practice has, in fact, become a devilish distortion. For years I have believed that my traditionalism is compatible with the environment in which I function, that it is a path that the faithful should be reminded of for their own spiritual benefit. Through my ministry I wanted to lead the faithful to an evolutionary transition from the existing state to Catholic tradition. I was under the illusion that the voice of a few traditional hierarchs, such as Bishop Athanasius from Kazakhstan or Cardinal Robert Seurat, can serve as support, encouragement, and guide. But I was deeply mistaken, because these faithful prelates are consistently marginalized. I was aware of the struggle for the church, but I was not aware of how infiltrated it was by any error that came from a morbid attempt to adapt her to the world. The Polish church appeared to me as a refuge, as still a healthy spiritual tissue. However, the reality of the trial showed something completely different. This present situation that, is, that has gripped the world is a period when the intentions of the hearts of many have come out. The analysis by Catholic faithful interested in the history of the Church is clear. There is an unusual ignorance of the warning efforts of the popes of the 19th and 20th centuries, such as the instruction of the Alta Vendita, which Pius IX and Leo XIII published to illustrate the devilish plan against the Church. Also encyclicals such as Marari Vos, Pascendi Dominici Gregis, Quanta Cura, and the Syllabus, as well as others, intended to counter the errors of modernity, were ignored. Even today, it is not difficult to read them in the right context and understand what they refer to and what they condemn. Of course, this is a great simplification, but the source of the present state of the Church is certainly to be found in the Church's infiltration with philosophical trends and theological errors that were unambiguously condemned by the Magisterium decades earlier. A rhetorical question. Where was this now so famous obedience then? In Polish conditions, the crisis of the Church is closely linked with the history of the political transformation. The lack of clerical vetting, especially among the hierarchy, preserved people of at least dubious qualities in the highest positions. 
This state of affairs caused years of lowered moral standards for the clergy, and unfortunately today everything is completed by the compromising attitude of the hierarchs in the face of the fall of numerous subordinates. On the other hand, there was an attack on the doctrine by allowing the floor to speak and not reacting to the overtly non-Catholic content that was made public under the guise of freedom of theological research. Today I can clearly see the Polish church striving to implement all modernist ideas. Meanwhile, I have the feeling of being the only one in the province that does not accept such a state, because silence, or silent criticism, for which there is no resistance, is finally accepted. The lack of common faith and sensitivity to fundamental issues will not obscure my, often very fraternal, relationship with many of my confreres. So everything that has happened in my life in the last year places me in a state of greater necessity. The present tragic condition of the church can only be compared to the Arian crisis, in which, by listening to heretical bishops, you risked your own salvation. On all this, the principle of totalitarian rights to break conscience was applied to everyone who took vows and is in the hierarchy. By ordering people to do unworthy, harmful things, and clearly condemned in the light of the church's documents, the hierarchy claims such rights, forgetting that it was God who was, is, and should be finally the addressee of every canonical vow. One of the venerable priests once told me, Consider whether your provincial and bishop will go to the filial judgment with you. Will they be attorneys or co-defendants? They will not be at your final judgment. Is active implementation of errors against faith and obedience pleasing to God? Without using reason and returning to a Thomistic approach, soon the provincial fathers in German monasteries will be blessing James Martin contracts, of course under the greatest virtue of obedience. Let's not be naive. These... Devil, this devilish news will come to our diocese, especially in Opole, in a few or several years. I do not believe in stopping the scandal of the church in its present condition. The only way out of my situation is joining the priestly fraternity of St. Pius X, where the true treasure of tradition and healthy Catholic teaching were preserved, invariably proclaimed for the salvation of souls. Any other path would be inauthentic and would once again doom me to conflicts of conscience. This is not a decision made in a rush of emotions, although in the face of the prevailing modernism and Protestantization, there were also. It is a decision made after many months of discernment, combined with the reading of papal encyclicals and the writings of the great minds of the Church. My individual studies on the problems of the Church go back to the beginning of the religious formation and certainly also form the basis for this decision. Acting with full awareness, I am convinced that my only reaction may be to leave the Franciscan order which actively participates in every destructive action aimed at the sacred. It results from a following the general clause, salvation of souls is the highest law of the church. In this case also my own soul. I learned also about true obedience thanks to the SSPX, although in the minds of today's post-conciliar priests, the priestly society of St. Pius X is considered disobedient and even synonymous with disobedience. It turned out, however, that it is the SSPX that, that properly understands and fulfills the virtue of obedience. I also understood why Thomism is so strongly removed from the seminaries. It was in the fight against Thomism that Pius X saw a characteristic symptom of modernism, and the elimination of Thomism was probably meant to introduce unreflective obedience in the Church, completely detached from the Church's superior goal, i.e. the work of saving souls. Priestly Fraternity of St. Pius X spoke aloud what I had felt in my heart always anyway. Humility and wisdom, clear, Thomistic, that is, a realistic approach to problems. Archbishop Lefebvre does not need a special apology did it today because his works defend themselves, and they're bearing fruit. Anyone who can go beyond the set of circulating negative and unfair slogans will see it. 
The Archbishop's fears about the effects of conciliar resolutions have become more and more justified over the years. After all, time is the measure of truth. The very fact that the bishops, saving themselves from the exodus of the most pious to the SSPX chapels, create the diocesan pastoral care tradition is another proof of God's origin of this work, communion in the hand. Shortly before the first mess, as a result of publishing private email correspondence by people who were not its addressees, in which I refused the ultra-modernist congregation of religious sisters of communion in the hand, I was subjected to pressure, a.e. blackmail. It was certainly the moment when I realized that my paths with the provinces were just going to diverge, not for personal reasons, but because of an extremely different approach to the most important matter that priestly hands can hold, i.e. the Blessed Sacrament. I wish I had known of the SSPX at the time. It would have sped up my decision and saved my conscience. When I accepted the obedience, I do not intend to attack any of my fathers or brothers in my order, for they are victims of innocent ignorance. Nevertheless, I believe that every priest should have constant reflection on the state of the church, on the supernatural goal to which the church is to lead. The awakening of the faith or its extinguishing in the presence of the Lord Jesus in the Eucharist should be the object of the highest concern for every priest. After moving to the parish in the environment of confreres who did not see the problem, I had a choice. Accept a notorious violation of my conscience or say no and join the community of steadfast priests, because I consider priests of Catholic tradition to be such. Of course, this decision had to mature in me for some time, and then pass to the implementation stage. In the light of the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas, as well as the judgment of the mind and voice of conscience, in no case can I agree to act according to the sentence, think what you want, but you must follow the rules. What value, what, uh, what thing of value can come from obedience in this sense? How is this virtue of obedience to correspond with the two theological virtues if it obviously kills the virtue of faith? An attitude that is offensive to reason is when one does not see the servitude of obedience to faith, hope, and love. Could it be a virtue at all to accept being a passive instrument in the hands of a hierarchy that is already clearly departing from the Catholic faith? From the spiritual side, the situation is clear. The Polish Episcopate, encouraging the faithful to take communion in hand, implements the guidelines of Martin Busser, a student of Luther, who formulated in the 16th century rules for departing from the faith in the real presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. This fact alone should induce priests to refuse to participate in these practices, relying on conscience and the general clauses of canon law to justify the promotion of communion in the hand, using the present circumstances that we're not permitted to question on this platform without being severely punished, is, to put it mildly, an offense to the mind. This has been clearly and repeatedly de demonstrated by the related professionals to that problem, community. It makes no sense to quote the history of the practice of communion in the hand, although it seems that the modernists have already written their version of this story, which ignores the most important abuses and threatens to the Catholic faith. So it quickly becomes clear to those who take the trouble to discern the situation that this is what Satan does in the church. How else to call the privileging in churches of people who do not actually distinguish the body of the Lord from the Christmas wafer? From the beginning of my religious journey, with the clear guidance of the Blessed Virgin, I was given the opportunity to observe this practice. I encountered it for the first time during field mass in Trebenka in a group of pilgrims from Germany. What struck me a lot was the lack of any hint of adoration. After ingestion, they immediately began to joke with each other. I realized that I had to take a closer look at this phenomenon, as it was evidently related to the lack of awareness of greatness of the one who was received in communion. Later observations did not differ much from the first one, and I do not fully blame those people for whom it was presented as appropriate and worthy. Here are some statistics. 
In the United States, 20 years after the introduction of this shameful practice, communion in the hand, about 70% of Catholics no longer believe in the real presence of the Savior in the Eucharist. From the pastoral point of view, I was witness and participant in the rescue of visible particles from the hands of the communicated ones. I saw people in front of the priest shaking the remnants of the body of the Lord on the church floor, not to mention the notorious incoherence of movements and the disrespectful handling of the body of the Lord, and it will not be changed by desperate and erroneous attempts to look for a justification for this past practice in patristics. Anyway, already condemned as an error of archaeology by Pius XII. For years I have lulled my conscience to sleep when I said in seminary, what can I do as a seminarian and religious? It remains for me to be faithful in my little field, but today as a priest I see that it is impossible for me to be silent and I am a tool for introducing profanation and desecration in the church. We have nothing more precious in this world than the body of the Lord. We are unable to imitate St. Francis in everything, but we certainly can and must honor of the Blessed Sacrament. How much encouragement has always been given to me by the letter to the entire order, especially these passages. Here he quotes St. Francis of Assisi. Remember, my brother priests, what is written in the Mosaic Law, how one who transgressed even in outward signs at the judgment of the Lord died without any mercy. How many, how much more deserves greater and worse punishments whoever tramples the Son of God and desecrates the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace. For man despises and defiles and tramples the Lamb of God, when, as the Apostle says, without distinguishing and not distinguishing the holy bread of Christ from other foods or things, he eats unworthy, or even though he is worthy, eats in vain and unworthy, because the Lord speaks through the prophet. Cursed is the man who carries out the work of God treacherously. And priests who do not really want to take it to heart he condemns, saying, They will curse your blessings. How holy, just, and worthy should be the one who touches with his hands, welcomes with his heart and mouth, and serves others to eat, who is no longer subject to death but lives in eternal glory, whom the angel wishes to see. End quote. For a long time, I thought that this passage must impregnate the community against the procedure of communion in the hand because it is not necessary to resort to great exegesis to understand the views of St. Francis on this matter. Of course, in the mind of the poor man, there was probably no fear that it was a hierarchy itself that would tell us to do this with the bread from heaven, meaning St. Francis. This is a huge blow to the salvation of souls if priests are not concerned about the faith and the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Thoughts on the Novus Ordo Missae and the Mass of all time. Of course, the promotion of communion in the hand is not the only reason for my decision. It is more the tip of the iceberg. The real affliction is the intrusive Protestantization of the Church, stripping the priesthood of its uniqueness. This situation could have changed by the modu proprio summorum pontificum, but it was completely ignored in our province, and it was, after all, the express will of Benedict XVI, that there be a return to the celebration of the Mass of Pius V. I remember from the seminar that during one of the lectures, at the very beginning, it was necessary to subscribe to the lecturer's view of the unworthiness, redundancy, and harmfulness of quote-unquote integrist groups in the church, which clearly illustrates the general tendency among the priests of the provinces. I spent a lot of time there myself, learning to say the all-time mass, which in my heart I had always wanted to celebrate, bearing in mind the unspeakable sense of the sacred that I remembered when I participated in it as a layperson. It was my great joy. Today, however, I am condemned to celebrate her either alone in hiding, avoiding awkward questions, or for a very small group of friends who share my belief in the perfection and greatness of this rite. I wish to celebrate fully only the all-time Mass, which is a completely different spiritual reality from the Novus Ordo Missae, and only someone who celebrates both rites will understand the dissonance. The entire brief critical analysis of Cardinals Odoviani and Bacci, 
becomes fully understandable and obvious, and the intentions of the creators of the new Mass are best summarized in this way. All these changes are nothing but a provocative emphasis on the silent rejection of the dogma of the real presence. The difference between such a promoted concelebration and the celebration of Mass of all time is a real shock. You can see how the whole Novus Ordo Missae is stripped of the gestures of adoration, how many prayers in the new rite of the Mass have been removed, and how turning the altar around affects the sense of the sacred. The words of Cardinals Ottaviani and Bacci become clear. The new liturgy will greatly delight all groups on the brink of apostasy that are ravaging the church, twisting her body and attacking doctrinal, liturgical, moral, and philosophic unity in the midst of a spiritual crisis unprecedented in history. It is really sad to see the com commitment of young priests full of good intentions and attempts to win the Protestant youth for themselves so that the church is fun and cheerful. After all, no one looks for attractions in the church because they have them in the world. The sacred is what we are looking for in the church, and this is the essence of the fact that man is Kapok's day, open to God. Because he has a soul wants to know and love God, he can enter a higher level of life in grace. Only the all-time mass gives the fullness of this saturation with God and a genuine directing of one's life to God. On the Second Vatican Council, and here I'm going to make an uh, attempt to clarify one thing he's saying here. What he's about to say here, because it sounds like he's going to express an opinion that completely contradicts everything he said here. That's not what he's doing. He is go expressing an opinion that as it was given to him when he was being trained to be a priest. Meaning the opinion he's expressing here initially is going to be that of what we can call the Catholic establishment. Let's get back to him. On the Second Vatican Council. My seminar education was twofold. I myself used studies on the history of the Church in the position of traditionalist to discover the truth. The famous textbook on the history of the Church by Father Kumora, for example, in two sentences dismisses the crux of the problem that arose at the Second Vatican Council. It was convened, we're told, not to inculcate into the Church slogans from the French Revolution and all previously condemned errors, but to refine the Fifth Marian Dogma and oppose Bolshevism. It was a genuine inspiration for the Holy Spirit. What is the competence of those who are so willing to speak up, assessing the attitude of the Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre? The opinions I heard during the lectures were usually not supported by any substantive arguments. One may ask, what is the state of general knowledge among the clergy regarding the course of the Second Vatican Council? Does the rank and file know what happened then and what kind of backstage games took place then? How timely the words of St. Pius X with Pascendi Dominici Gregis. Quote, the adherents of error are to be found today no longer among the open enemies of the church, but in the church itself. They hide, so to speak, within the very interior of the church. Hence, they can be more harmful because they are less visible. End quote. How inconsistent were the attempts to deny the controversy and harmfulness of the conciliar documents that I heard? In one of the classes, the lecturer convinced us that the accusation of the council was a false trace, and another lecture, the concept of the quote-unquote anonymous Christian by Rahner as the source of the destruction of the missionary spirit. Of course, the problems of the church consist of several great ones, and besides, hundreds of minor errors, which only opened the door by the council. The rest were completed by the enemies of the church in practice. The tragic divergence of the dogmatic and pastoral paths is a characteristic sign of our times and a sign of weakness. Let the schizophrenia be described in the words of one of the professors of W.S.D. Antonium about the service with the lady pastor. Quote, I was doing exactly what I taught that I must not. The church does not start at the Second Vatican Council, and the popes warned us against such apostasy before. Everything is described in the encyclical Morari Vos. The universal church abhors every novelty, which has been decided once and for all, neither diminished, changed, nor added. 
but everything in words and in interpretation must be kept intact. It is difficult to understand people who, knowing this and similar content, are not critical of what is happening in the church. Although the awareness of the harmfulness of the Second Vatican Council is increasing among the clergy, all the time openly presenting the problem and calling this event evil and a failure of the church results in an anathema in the structure of this church. The delicate criticism of the Second Vatican Council, which a clergyman can afford, cannot afford without sanction, only admits the possibility of a misrepresentation of the council, quote-unquote. However, always with the full and enthusiastic appreciation of the idea of renewal supposedly guiding the council fathers, and the emphasis on the illusory hermeneutic of continuity with early church documents. In one of the lectures on the introduction to theology, the Venerable Father Provincial deigned to raise the theme of the stonecutter list of John Paul I. What a ray of hope it was in my heart. I thought, he knows. But what's behind that? Does the very fact of knowledge release us from reflecting on the intra-church activities of those unfortunate hierarchs who have come into conflict with evil? The Voice of the Holy Mother, Our Blessed Lady In order to maintain the appearance of Mary, the Order promotes the so-called apparitions in Medjugorje. Through their deceptive nature was made clear at the very beginning of their message, the so-called Gospel stated that, quote, all religions are equal and salvation may be achieved in any. However, no one rebukes priests who writes books about this deceptive phenomenon or organizes pilgrimages. Perhaps this is why the revelations recognized by the Church are the shocking content that perfectly reflect the present situation in the Church disappear from our eyes. The words of Our Lady of Quito made a great impression on me. Quote, After infiltrating all strata of society, the stonecutter sects will spread their errors in families with great cunning. However, also then there will be religious congregations that support the Church and holy priests hidden and beautiful souls who will work with energy and selfless enthusiasm for the salvation of souls. The wicked will wage a cruel war against them, slandering, insulting, and harassing them, trying to discourage them from fulfilling their duties. Pray earnestly that out of love for the Eucharistic heart of my most holy Son, for his precious blood poured out with such generosity, and for the deep bitterness and pain of his passion and death, that he would have mercy on his servants, and put an end to these terrible times, that he would send a church a prelate who will renew the spirit of the priests." End quote. Of course, these are private revelations, not necessary for salvation, but food for thought. Forced me to ask, though, who might it be? On his Franciscan order. By joining the Franciscan community, I certainly idealize priests and consecrated persons. It does not change the fact that I have met many great religious brothers, especially non-priests, who have truly been examples of virtue, commitment, and brotherhood for me. Many honorable lecturers and formators will also remain in my fond memory. I am sorry at the thought of parting with them, but I cannot put my fraternal relationship, even the most intimate, with my priesthood duties on equal footing. When I took my perpetual vows, it was obvious to me that they were not vows in the sense of absolute, excluding the use of reason or behavior. It was obvious and logical for me that the most important thing in everything was the sentence concluding the code of canon law. I must choose to pursue the priesthood in the spirit of tradition at the expense of the apparent breaking of vows, although there was no choice because these are, are two kinds, different kinds of favor. I had to ask myself the question, would staying in the order guarantee me the eternal life promised in perpetual vows? I doubt it. The great mystic of our time, Padre Pio, on hearing about the conciliar aggiornamento among the Capuchins, says, St. Francis will not get to know his sons, and yet he did not know to what extent the reforms would evolve. It is a Phariseeism to believe that simply belonging to the Franciscan order, 
squandering the legacy of its founder will automatically guarantee my salvation. I cannot believe that I am the only one. Many of us were secretly critical of the behavior of an ad hoc bishop who commissioned an ecumenical service, including with a woman dressed in bishop's robes. We were amazed to read the statements of a certain archbishop, highly respected in the provinces, in which he preached views contrary to Catholic teaching, whose thoughtless ecumenism, which offends the Catholic Church, is legendary. How many times in the quiet of the monastery rooms, hearing about the ideas and activities of individual bishops, we see their lack of faith and morbid attempts to not expose themselves to public opinion, extreme modernism, ecumenism with Protestants, legitimizing them as someone equal to the apostolic church. How many times have we heard about it not to be scandalized when we encounter James Martin-type behavior in international religious forums, i.e. with monks looking for opportunities to commit sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance? Regardless, the biggest problem for so many are those who wish to return to tradition as a remedy for all these theological and moral scandals. We see this, the symptoms of the malady, and moreover, many respond adequately to them. We are still afraid to make the correct call. Evil feeds primarily on the inactivity of the righteous. It does not endow itself with any particular sanctity, because I know very well that in the seminary I have met confreres of much more humility, asceticism, and piety than mine. But for reasons that are understood, deserved by me, it was I who got the grace to discover the true tradition. And in the face of this fact, I cannot and do not want to remain indifferent. Leaving is certainly the most difficult decision in my life, much more difficult than entering a religious order than being an ordained priest, but it is still the fruit of the same grace of the calling and serving Christ in his church. The extraordinary encouragement I feel on the part of the Blessed Mother gives me confidence in my actions, and it is from her that comes the strength and ability to enter the path that is so difficult, with all my non-conflict of character. Almost a year in the present situation, ministry, was not a waste of time. I met many wonderful people who accurately assessed the ecclesial situation. I thank God for the many wonderful souls that the Lord has placed on my way to whom I have been able to serve with the sacrament of reconciliation and guidance. It pains me that I will be considered a traitor in the order, someone who has abandoned obedience, but I have to pay this price in order not to endure any longer in the state of frustration and constant crisis in which I find myself. I am not offended by the provinces, and I am not looking for private profit and freedom from my superiors, because such voices may arise. But I emphasize the fact that my departure is not to a diocese, other province or order. In fact, it would not be any change other than to change your environment and free yourself from personal relationships or the bond of precedent. Still, I would be under pressure from the modernist hierarchs and anything that should resist a priest. Leaving it is a decision that saves my calling. It is possible to do anything more tragic than to be ordained and then squander or hide what has been received. After all, we will report on every loss of faith in the presence of Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. We will report on the loss of souls who, searching deeply for God and the graces flowing from the Holy Sacrifice, receive only a performance played by the celebrant about God. I leave many issues untouched, such as the introduction of demonic groups in the church in the form of the Pacamama, the absolute loosening of the doctrine, the Lavender Club, the ennoblement of Luther at the top of the Vatican. There is certainly also a contribution to my decision. Today, the only remaining path in faithfulness to Jesus is the path of Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, that is, being somewhere on the periphery of the church with a clear outline of the problems that torment him, thus awakening the awareness of fervent believers. Nevertheless, I am aware that the path of departure to the SSPX will not be the path of a canonically conciliatory departure. It is the true obsession of the post-conciliar church to meet all kinds of heretics and dissenters, to deceive the scandals with the promise of easy salvation. Introduce the days of our elder brothers, 
celebrate the Reformation, and at the same time fight Catholic tradition as the source of evil. However, this is not a problem if you have lost the ability to say yes, yes, no, no. A synthetic reflection on the state of the church and priesthood and pastoral events that I have experienced brings to mind an analogy with an exceeded critical mass. Therefore, I can no longer minister in such a church. Having taken all the issues together, I understood that I was in a state of greater necessity, in a state that entitles me to refer to the last canon of the Code of Canon Law, quote, the salvation of souls, which should always be the highest law in the church. Nevertheless, I count on understanding, or at least factual reading of the above apology and respect for my sensitivity and concern for my own salvation. I would like to quote the example of Archbishop Vitus Honder, who obtained the consent of the Holy Father Francis to spend his retirement in the SSPX prior. In closing, I will use the words, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind, that you may experience what God's will is and pleasing and perfect. See Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Signed, in all sincerity, Father Cyprian Colendo, the Franciscans. And there you have it. His reasoning is clear, only muddled by this being a translation from a letter in Polish to English. I have to say, I have heard that there are things happening on the ground in Poland that can be inspiring for the faithful in the rest of the world. And if that is the case, please email me links to news articles about the events in Poland by the laity and brave priests who are most interested in preserving sacred tradition in the church. And if you uh, made it all the way through here to about minute 30 or so of this video, I thank you. <laughs> For those watching, my email address is on the screen. For the rest, it is in the description box of this podcast. Let me know what you thought of this in the comments, please, and thank you to the patrons of this channel whose, whose uh, support makes being able to find these last-minute stories for you that throw my schedule in complete disarray makes it possible. It is appreciated. And as well, thanks to the listener who sent me this letter from the Polish priest. It is most helpful. Between this priest and the Dominican priest last week, something is clearly happening in Poland, so please keep the Polish Catholics in your prayers, as well as I always say to keep and please pray for the church in this in general in this time. We live in a strange time of crisis in the church, and your prayers for the church are essential. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria. <laughs>